All right. Welcome to Micro College. This week on the podcast, we are honored to have as our guest, Ethan Kobayashi Shie, uh, who is a person who we've been connected to through some of the friends of the podcast, um, Jonas Sovic and uh, John Verveke, um, and uh, really excited to talk about his work. Um, Ethan is the, is the artistic director of Five to Midnight International. Working at the intersection between actor training, cognitive science, and post-union psychoanalysis, he has developed TIAMAT, which stands for the Integrative Approach and Methodology of Active Transformation, through practice as research with the company, conducting workshops in five countries around the world. Ethan has a master's degree in theater and drama facilitation from Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, and will be continuing the research of TIAMAT as an ecology of practices for wisdom cultivation for his PhD. He is a life coach, a yoga instructor, and bodywork healer with coaching clients in China, Thailand, and Australia. And uh, his home is in Singapore, and today he's joining us from London. So a real a global citizen. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us, Ethan. Hey, thanks for having me, Jacob. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Ethan and I, uh, a week ago, had, had, a, had a long conversation, got into the to, to his work, and um, I'm really excited to have him on to talk about it again. Um, uh, let him know that I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you uh, you know when you talk about your your work uh, to really I'm gonna ask you to define your terms in a good Socratic kind okay. of fashion and because uh, I'm excited to to have people who listen to the podcast understand what you're working on and um and also uh, one of the reasons for this conversation is that theater is a growing part of the work of Thoreau College here and and just the the integration of these methodologies for personal development for wisdom cultivation and, and as part of a holistic education is something that is really of interest to us here so it's a it's a timely conversation so yeah. but before we dig into that uh here on micro college we always start with people's life stories um in particular uh ask uh i'd like to ask you to reflect on where you were ages 18 to 21 um kind of the kind of typical age range of our students here where were you what were you doing and what was what was having uh what shaped you during that period of your life mm. yeah i think when i was when i was 18 i would say even up to 21 when i was 21 i was still 16 um in a lot of ways and still trying to figure stuff out still trying to kind of get my bearings around what did I want to commit to? Um, what was going to set a path down for me that I feel in my bones I can follow um, for the foreseeable future and hopefully to the end of my life? Um, I think I was still an alcoholic. I started drinking when I was 14. You know, I... Yeah, maybe this is a good place to, to actually start. So when I was 18, I had just left... Um, my polytechnic um and i was doing polytechnic is something like the equivalent of uh 10th grade or something like that, uh maybe 12th grade so but yeah 12th grade um and it was actually quite a profound moment of disillusionment for me because we had gone on a field trip um sorry, let me just close the window here um yeah, so we had gone to a field trip for the Singapore Association for the Deaf. Um, and we were supposed to be speaking to the principal as a class. Right? And this was a course in applied theater, applied drama and psychology. And we had gone in and met the principal and, and you know, it's a vocational school. So you, 
you kind of go in and you learn skills and then you go out into the working world. And I had happened to ask the principal this question. Um, what happens to uh, students who graduate and or they're on placement and then they get bullied at the workplace? What measures do you have in place for that? And you know, is is not like it's not like this was um something that was hard to spot. We, we would see um places like McDonald's um hire visually handicapped people or or and by the way, the school was actually quite broad. So it had um students who are visually handicapped, there are people from the deaf community, the students from the disabled community, and they would always wear a badge, right? That says be patient with me or something like that, you know, just to let people know. And there was a part of me that felt well, that's a bit of a target um, for bad faith, right? And so I asked, you know, what, what would happen if they get bullied in the workplace? And the principal said, oh, you know, we just uh, send them somewhere else. And I was like, eh, yeah, um, I'm sure it's changed now. Uh, that was like 2008 or something like that, 2004, I can't remember. Anyway, so I, I said, uh, no, 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 I mean, like in terms of like rehabilitation or like aftercare, is there something, is there a protocol for that? Um, and he went, nope, we just placed them somewhere else. And I remember getting into an altercation in that room uh, at that moment of like, well, that's from my teachers, like, you know, that's not the thing we're supposed to be asking here. We're here to talk about the curriculum. And I went, but this is kind of important. Um, and I got very, very disillusioned by that. Um, so I decided to leave and I went to pursue art. Went to an art school. Um, and I was there for, for another couple of years. And in that time, I had built up uh, a kind of freelance career as a performer and as an actor um, in the local scene. Um, and started getting you know really interesting opportunities, which I just couldn't like give up um you know there was a wonderful opportunity that was offered to me to go to new york actually like all expenses paid and go and work with international um actors and that caused a stir in the faculty because it would mean like shifting my grading and they had to come up with another <laughs> assignment they had to exclude me from an assignment that would otherwise be collaborative or something like that. there was a lot of paperwork um and anybody who knows anything about me would know that i'm kind of a rebel so uh, I went to the dean, I went to other lecturers, <laughs> my course leader had said no, um, and I kind of gathered all these other um, lecturers together and we had like an impromptu meeting outside one of our classes. And um, the dean said, look, here's the final word, um, the rest of us have agreed on it, um, to my course leader anyway, and said, okay, all you have to do is um, do the paperwork design a separate assignment for him, he'll hand it up, right, and do it well, um, and then you can go. Right? I was like, great. Uh, she was not happy. She was not happy about that. Um, I ended up, that was my final project, and instead of working with my classmates um, with resources and um, in collaboration with another department, I had to... Uh, find my own actors, source my own funding, um, steal rehearsal space at night in school when no one else was working. Um, I had to do my own presentation whatsoever. Um, and I failed. I failed that assignment. You know, For what reasons? I don't know. I can't say for certain what they are. But if there's anything that I, I learned from that, as I was walking into the army at the age of 21, <laughs> um, 
was that, you know, no matter what it is, um, I found value. I found value in deciding on a path. Looking at that path really closely. Turn every rock. Yeah, I'm getting emotional now because this is really resonating with the current context that I'm in. But yeah, to stick with your guns, try it out, fail. And if you fail, you learn something in that failure, but at least it's on your own terms. And that's carried me for a while until now. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, um, I've reflected that, you know, in my own my own life, um, you know, I, I, did, I did theater throughout high school and a little bit in college as well. And, you know, it is certainly one of the most influential parts of experiences in my life and and uh, and certainly informs my work as a teacher. And, um, and maybe you can talk about that. I and mean, what what does um, what does acting? What does the theater do uniquely that that other activities cannot do in terms of development and and uh yeah the sort of things that, that you're talking about wisdom development things like that ah oh, uh, i love this question um because i attempted to do this i attempted to actually lay down a definition for what performance is um in cognitive science terms for my master's thesis uh so far i haven't heard too much backlash on it so i'll, I'll take it that it's good enough for me to share um but maybe I'll, I'll preface this with an example. So if I have to play someone that's drunk, right, it's not enough for me to know um, what drunk people, how drunk people walk. Right? It's not enough for me to know the mechanics of addiction to alcohol. It's not enough for me to know um, what alcohol does in the brain, how long I've been drinking, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, this is all like propositional knowledge, which is great for setting up the world of the play um, and communicating with other people. I can tell other people my character has had an alcohol problem for 30 years. And that's, you know, some kind of shared reality that I might have with my scene partner. But it doesn't help me play the, the character, actually, <laughs> right? So what is actually being done is having to adopt, and, and this is my, my allegiance, I think, a bit to uh, traditional arts, that it's leaning into the physical form of just walking as if one is drunk, right? To pick up a bottle and drink as I would if I if I was um, addicted to alcohol. And in doing that, trying to build the relevance that a bottle might have on stage for me that is uniquely mine. Right. So even if that means that I ignore it consciously, I'm ignoring it because otherwise it calls to me and thou shalt pick mine. <laughs> um, so I, I defined performance as the deliberate construction and inhabitation of a salience landscape, i.e. what's relevant to us in a field when we perceive it, a salience landscape that's independent of a good life. It's not aligned to human betterment. It can't be um, in most cases, right? Because 
independence of a good life means there's dramatic tension, there's, there's, there's conflict, it's exciting to watch, right? If everybody's, you know, a sage on stage, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not the best show in the world, you know? <laughs> Even if one character were that, everybody else around them is also flawed in some ways. What makes that one really, like, good with the capital G um, character impactful to the story? But for the most part, um, those roles don't exist. The most flawed people are the most um, dramatic to watch and interesting and, and relatable. Yeah. Hmm. Does that answer your question a little bit? Well, well yeah. So I think that, that the experience of, of, of uh, as, uh, as an actor in kind of inhabiting the role of those, those flawed characters and, and, and seeing the world from those perspectives um, is that that certainly is, is a powerful experience uh, in, in, in my own experience in watching students work through it. Um, so so what what's next? Like once you you've done that, like what what does it do over time to to have stepped into those different? Maybe it's an alcoholic, maybe it's a person who's got mm -hmm. violence issues, maybe it's a person who's depressed. Like what like you do that repetitively, uh, and and maybe hopefully a few characters who got it together. And what is what how do, how do you how are you change by that experience? Yeah, well, there are multiple um, levels to address this, right? So I'll I'll start on an individual level, and then I'll speak about it on a collective level. On an individual level, um, it expands the range of your experience. I I don't I mean I'm I'm eleven years sober, but if I were to step into the role of an alcoholic, that's an experience that I'm not going to choose to bring into my everyday life, which I get to experience for a while, right? And I get to have a sense of who somebody is by by generating it, you know. Um, and this is the power of the imaginal, right? The imaginal is a as a lens in which which you put in front of you to see the world in a different way. Now, as that occurs, the identity is going to start to shift. Because, ooh, I'm I'm no longer me. I'm I I am I can be in a way like less of myself and tack on other things. Like it's like a like a modular system almost, right? I'm going to take this part out. I'm going to change this hard drive. I'm going to stick another one in, increase the capacity in this way, change the way I look at the world in this way. And I always love this idea that the, that the human being is multiplicitous. We can see the world in many different ways should we choose. Now, to expand that onto a kind of more macro level, um, and this is a conversation that I've... Um, I recently had with uh, Christopher Mastro Pietro. We were discussing this very, very thing um, about how performance ties into the aspirational mechanic. And I think this is interesting for both actors and audiences to consider that at the very basic level, watching someone perform and why we are so drawn to it is like, is watching somebody's attempt to be someone other than who they are. And that's no small feat, you know? Like, that's... I see you nodding. That's great, right? It's like, that's, that, that's not a small thing. Because to be someone other than you are is actually to highlight the possibility that aspiration itself can be actualized. You know? The person that you can imagine yourself to be is actually something that you can become. <laughs> and there's something about... I, I love, maybe I'm a bit romantic, right? But it's like when I think about that from a collective, if I think about it from an audience point of view, it's like, oh, if my life is shit, 
here is somebody who can be someone who they are not, right? To, to change their salient landscape. Maybe that's possible for me too. And in that, in that possibility is the question of, okay, then who do you want to be? And if you watch a tragedy, the arc of the tragedy is something like the person that this uh, onstage guy chose to be is much, much worse. It's not going somewhere well at all. <laughs> Maybe not that. <laughs> Maybe not anything but that. Right? And then you can choose something else and choose something else and choose something else. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 a it's a practice of of self transformation, right? And 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 what would the world look like from this perspective? What would it like to be that person? Um, yeah, that's powerful. Mm. I think one of the things that comes out right away in looking at your work and and the conversations you've had with John Ravakey and other folks um, is is you know this is not just imagination uh, and it's not it's not just mental. Um, it's not just the words on the on the script or the words that you're saying. It's very embodied, right? The, the the how you know, like that that bottle on the stage, how you interact with it, like that. You yeah. have to become very aware of your body. Can you talk about that? And like, and how does that that body awareness, the somatic awareness, serve these these ends we're talking about? Ooh, I love this. I love this question. Um, for me, the the question of embodiment is always um a question of resolution. So, uh, if I were to ask you. Like just even as we're sitting, how much tension is there in your hamstrings, for example? Can you feel into that? Are you able to tighten just your left hamstring? How do you feel doing that? What does it change in your experience? And getting a sense that, ooh, you know, or maybe if I like if I tighten my entire body, right? I'm sending all different signals happening, and they have there are causal relationships that are occurring. Not all of them are, you know, things that uh, uh, neuroscience can point to and say, okay, when you do this, this thing is happening. It's not that one-to-one match. There are broad patterns, but. At the same time, there's also a very idiosyncratic experience of what that is for you at this point in time. And so there's always this search within the body of like, ooh, if I do this, can I sense into that? What's that causing? What images is that bringing up? Right? And I don't mean visual images. I mean like also things like memories, association. Um, how do you sense into that? How do you sense that if I tense this, maybe the other thing somehow unconsciously like, oof, like pricks up or, or loosens open. And so when I talk about like a sense of somatic awareness, I mean it more in a, in a sense of how, uh, what's the word? How detailed of an operation manual of your own experience can you write? Hmm. And to have mastery of that. Um, I know how to... I know how to uh, tighten certain points of my muscles and my body so that I can cry. And I can track that, that mechanic around like how it causes a tremble in my voice. 
and I can adjust my breathing <laughs> and rate of speech until something comes. And when it does come, I'm going to allow it and like lean a little bit more into what the association is or why and allow that over time to be motivated by something that is occurring in a text or something that's happening on stage. Yeah. Hmm. Beautiful. <laughs> Thanks for the demonstration there. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I, I, if you look at you know the, the work that that we are we're doing here at Thoreau College, um, you know we the the concept of the liberal arts is is a significant one for us, and I think it's it's a term that um, it's come up in, in several recent um, podcast interviews that I've done you know, about as a term that is is needs to be sort of uh, renovated and and, uh, and and restored to its significance because I think what you're describing on a, on the most fundamental physical level is is about becoming free, right? Choosing how you interact with, with the world. And that requires not just a set of concepts and principles, propositions. It also requires this deep kind of physical knowledge as well as a social knowledge. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, you know, the, the work that we do here, you know, um, with, with tools and animals and farming um, is also in line with that. Can you change the world in a physical way that you want and here can you change your own your own body and your emotional state can you choose how you interact with the world and i certainly it resonates with me to say that 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 uh, that drama and theater and and uh you know and these 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 kind of practices are are significant in that way so beautiful um so i'm wondering maybe if you we can go um to talk about tiamat and i'm going to ask you mm -hmm. to to tell the a little bit of the story of how where that comes from uh in your biography but before that i i uh i wanted to ask you a question that that we didn't i didn't ask you when we spoke last which was about this name tiamat you're invoking mm. the name of uh the kind of a really uh archetypal mesopotamian mythological figure goddess what is yeah. it what's the story there <laughs> i was looking for a cool acronym um <laughs> no um well, uh, for those who don't know, um, Tiamat is the Mesopotamian goddess of salt water, and she's uh, she's usually depicted as a massive dragon, um, and and is a force of chaos. And for me, I think like I I I don't I don't mean this in like a self-aggrandizing way, but there's something very poetic about that, where I think especially in the globalization of the world over the past 200 years or something um there's a lot of order order has been put down um in such a way that i think we've given up a good deal of our agency uh and you know jung's seminal book uh, modern man in search of a soul was a big influence on me during my masters um as i was looking up um the history of communism um the history of globalization, the industrialization of the world, um, how Asian societies met, uh, worked with, were conquered by, integrated into Western society, um, and and adopted frameworks and and ways of being. Um, as a result of that influence, there was so much order. Even the fact that I'm speaking English is a result of that order. Now, this is not to say that you know I hold very tightly to a to a decolonization lens. That's not what I'm 
what I'm articulating at all. I'm, I, I, I want to make that very clear. Um, it's more that, okay, these things have occurred of which I reap quite a lot of benefits from. But then what is beneath all of that? What is beneath the, the um, affordances that modern society um, and Western influence has given me as an Asian person? Right. What's in the root of Chinese culture? What's in what's in Chinese philosophy that I might have forgotten or, or let go of? And diving into that is chaos. Mm. It can in fact I, I, I will argue that it's only possible to get to those through chaos. Um and I was really surprised how much of my research uh almost accidentally uh took me into Asia across Indonesia, Taiwan, Japan, um, and the kind of receptivity that it had, but also what came out of those explorations. So this is where I can lean a little bit into um, the biography of it, if you don't mind uh, a little bit. Yeah, um, so it's very nice that I am in London as I tell this story, because uh, my, my, my old drama school is just down the road. I used to uh, go to a drama school here and I was studying acting. And my course was the most culturally diverse course ever. I, I, it was so fantastic. We had like Norwegian folks and um, uh, French. Uh, we had French classmates, a couple of French classmates. We had um, South Africans. Uh, there was a Malaysian guy. Um, there was me from Singapore. Uh, yeah, it was it was quite a right range of cultures, you know, with, with some folks that were Caribbean and then grew up in South London, and then you know, so it was a really really big mix. And then, at the same time, we were being taught a, a wide range of techniques, you know, um, mostly Stanislavski, Michael Chekhov, um, Linklater voice work, etc. And they all seemed to be in service of, and, and this had to do with the curriculum, um, in service of a white middle-class audience. And there was something really odd for me there because I was going like, I'm, I have no intention to like really stay here and work. So I don't know why I'm learning to play to this audience. Um, but then I kind of like let that go and I say, okay, you know what, anyway, they're, they're good techniques to have. Right, um, never know when I have to bust out a British accent, so like let's do that. <laughs> but then, uh, and that one of the kind of like macro invitations of the course was that you learn a wide variety of techniques and then you integrate them into your own creative process. And I didn't know how to do that. <laughs> the 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 integration part was the weird bit, right? Because it's like I've got all of these cheeses and it's like, well, I don't know, I'm supposed to put them all in a single like piece of bread and then make a grilled cheese sandwich. I don't know how it's going to look. And I, there was no, there was no mechanics for that. So um, in my second year, I started my own lab, uh, like adjacent to the school, um, using one of the spaces that the school would afford to us. So every morning uh, on Monday, I go into the student office and I say, I have to book out this space for every single day um, until 11. And so I would go to class at eight o'clock in the morning, finish at six, have one hour of dinner, and then I would work independently all the way till 11. 
and I wasn't working alone. I was working uh, with some actors, but I was also working primarily with non-actors. You know, we had a Romanian rock musician. Uh, we had a Chinese biologist. <laughs> like, it was really weird. Um, with really eclectic group of people uh, who had an interest and an enthusiasm, but no kind of formal technique. And I wasn't going to teach them formal technique. That wasn't my job. I didn't want to claim uh, expertise over a domain uh, while I was still in school. That's, there was something about that I just felt wrong. Instead, I was more interested in what's the thing in the middle that if we were to just like pull exercises, right? And just give these guys some acting books and just like pull some exercises, like just try them out with each other outside of the frame of being an actor and wanting to to get an agent and all of that, what's the thing that speaks to you here that is deeper in the human experience? Um, and I did that for the whole year. Uh, and then I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to leave college. Uh, and then I went to Indonesia and explored it there. Same question, right? What are these things? And started developing exercises um, off of these. I started to extend these exercises in, in a way that kind of layered them together. I always like doing that. Like have this base piece, like a Lego block, have this base piece and then let's lay another thing on top of it, another thing on top of it, and they can still speak together uh, in chaos. Mm. So that basically has served me uh, since 2016 um, when it started. And now, uh, thanks to Fourier Cognitive Science, thanks to... Um, Jung's work, I, I'm, I'm able to have a kind of vocabulary to ground it all and be able to um, enact it in the room. Yeah. 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 That, that, uh, you know, that, that the dragon of chaos in our world, right. I think that that's, um, I really resonate with that as well. Like that it's, you know, there is the sense, especially working with young people. Um, I've, I've worked most of my career with adolescents, um, people who are you know, 14 to 18 year olds and uh, and now a little bit older than that but but you know that that I love working with teenagers I love working with adolescents because they always bring the chaos right yes <laughs> and that is as for for an older person uh you know, it keeps you on your toes it keeps you it, they're, they're always bringing fresh ideas and you know and I really you know one of the things that that uh you know, we've, we've named ourselves after Henry David Thoreau and, uh, you know, and mm. the, the, the civil disobedience and, and a little bit of a, a questioning of the order is, is built into what we're trying to do here. And, and to be an organization doing that is a special trick, right? Because you, you like to yeah. build it and organize things. Um, so, but I think living, living with the natural world and with, with teenagers, we'll, we'll keep that, you know, keep it fresh. So <laughs> I, I want to just say, like, I, I imagine that working with adolescents is also, um, well, at least what I was hearing is that it's actually kind of invigorating and refreshing for you to develop your own practice as a teacher. I think we spoke about this on our last call as well, right? Oh, would, yeah. you, would you expand on that a little bit? Well, yeah, totally. I think that I mean, a lot of uh, our institutions, you know, in our in world societies are, are kind of designed to like lock down teenagers, <laughs> right? To mm -hmm. keep them under control. And, uh, and it doesn't work very well, right? As we know, because um, that, that really is that, that, that dragon force in, in, you know, in our society, it's where revolutions come from. It's where, where new words and vocabulary and styles and music styles and everything comes from. <laughs> um, and so that, that is the fresh. And, and, and so I love living close to that, the, the spring where that comes from, which is teenagers and young people. Um, but for in our context in, in, in uh, you know, um, the schools that I've been involved with since I was a high school student, 
um, student governance, bringing teenagers and young people right into the center of decision making, whether that's a board of trustees or a committee that's designing curriculum or making hiring decisions, um, practical decisions, um, that that's a really a special zone of co-creation and and uh, and disruption, right? In in a positive sense, right? In a sense of of you know, we why are we doing this this way, right? We could do it differently, and that really, you know, if you're able, if you create a context where 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 teenagers and young people are able to speak up, and they feel comfortable enough to say that, and and they're not just going in and like complaining after they leave the room, but they're actually saying what they think in the room. Um, yeah, you, it's a powerful tool, and I, I really, you know. I'm, I'm, I'd like to make the case that really the you know countries and and world organizations really should be run by teenagers working with older people together. And, and mm. together. That's a unique kind of cross section. I think it lines up also with a lot of cognitive science, right? The the, the you know when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, you have the most synaptical connections in your brain, right? And after that, yeah. it gets pruned down, right? And that's important, right? A tree is pruned for a reason, and that and, and mm -hmm. it bears bears fruit. Otherwise, you have lots of little little things that don't don't really reach maturity. But but it's important to have all those connections to begin with. And uh, and so if you can work with with a with a you know in a person who's cultivated some sort of wisdom in the sort of the, in the course of their life, have life experiences, and 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 working with uh, fresh minds and fresh fresh kind of eyes on the world. That's really a magic combination, and that's um, that's part yeah, of what. You know, and it has to be the right scale. That's why micro is really important part of of, of projects that I've been involved with. Um, but also, you need to create a space that's not too rigidly locked in, and and has the ability to 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 flow with what's coming up. Yeah, and and I want to just like expand on this because I love that you brought up um, the idea the idea of governance and how well at the core of it is actually teenagers trying to attuned to the larger world or the larger society right so and i'm also going to try and like stretch a little bit um around where we started this conversation um in terms of the imaginal and what theater can afford so around the age of like 12 is really when uh, I, I'm sure. I'm sure you. I'm sure you know this. Uh, is a, a Piagetian idea. Piagetian idea. Yes. Piaget. Um, Piaget. Where Piaget, <laughs> right? Where you know the the child starts to leave the nest in in uh in a metaphorical sense, like thirteen, fourteen, all the way through to sixteen, you know, and I will argue even actually up to twenty one, but it, it scales up in complexity, is really this person right, trying to attune to their world, trying to attune to large groups of strangers and communities of strangers um, for the most part, right? It's why people start to, uh, teenagers start to form cliques, right? So they are tuning themselves to a relational field. And as we start to do that, we become aware I think teenagers especially start to become aware of the system. They start to develop systems thinking capability. So it's not just like a metacognitive capability of what's happening with me and the community, but it's also what's happening in the community of communities. Like like that click of the popular girls versus, you know, kind of like the IT club, which is where I was from, right? And like the gamers or whatsoever. And now in our modern time, like so much of the, the communities that are available are actually much more salient. 
you know, people become aware of different kinds of communities, not just in their own um, locale geographically, but also wider, right? Like at large in different countries and different cultures. There's a huge demand that's being put there. And so I think what the theater does and, and affords, like as I was saying earlier, is the ability to step into the experience of another. So, you know, what's it like for the victim to then play the bully? This is a typical psychodrama example, right? What's it like to play one of the popular girls? What's it like to play the kid from the poor family, right? And allow at this very vital point of development for the teenager to experience to some degree something outside of their life from a first-person embodied perspective rather than to form a kind of um, a stereotypical blanket judgment on the other. And then what I love about what um, Thoreau is doing is that it's grounding it not in the faculty, not necessarily in the curriculum, but actually in nature. We talked about seasons, right? The last time that we spoke. But it, it's there's something much more um, grounded, no pun intended, right? Like a, a, a common ground whereby, you know what? I don't care if you have an LV bag, right? Like you're putting plants in the ground. Right? And so for even for a moment, right, in that experience of life, we're just people doing something. We're, we're, it, it doesn't matter what your background is when you plant corn, when you plant a pumpkin, or pumpkins, pumpkins tend to grow everywhere. But, <laughs> right? But you know what I mean? Like in that domain, you know, who you are don't matter. What you're wearing don't matter. What car you drive don't matter. And I think that's important. That's an important skill to develop. And what I've seen, you know, like very, very hopefully, like people, like young people who are, you know, 20, 23, 24, um, 25. Man, some of these guys know stuff that I don't about how to work tech and AI and they can do like marketing collateral for me in like half an hour um <laughs> you know but they can also understand the kind of stuff that i write and they ask really exciting questions really, really interesting questions um and i'm constantly bowled over by the younger generation in fact i would dare say that i'm most of the time more impressed than disappointed yeah yeah i think that that is a something i try to share with everyone i talk to i mean the young people are yeah, they're 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 good people to get to know because <laughs> you hear people, you know, generational kind of trash talking, you know, all the time, and that's an ancient thing, right? I think, but um, but yeah. it's, there, I think, are, are are forces in our society which like try to exploit that division among other divisions, right? Is you know, yeah, the 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 millennials, the Gen Zers, the you know, the the those mm-hmm. kind of the boomers, like there there there's a way that that is um really working against the possibility of, of intergenerational learning and collaboration. That is some, certainly part of the project here is, is bringing different, different age groups together because there are gifts yeah. that are brought by, you know, people when they grow up, but also just their, the phase of life and in, in, in the, in the path of development. That's every traditional society has understood, right. That there's, you know, you got to have the elders and you got to have the, the young warriors and you got to have the, you know, people, all different phases of life. Yeah and speaking to each other yeah. like in deep contact with each other not just like through dialogue or we're talking or whatsoever but no like really making like socially impacting each other not in the sense of like 
oh, we're raising awareness for this or oh, we're going to make a protest. But no, I'm talking about like impact on the level of social contact. You know, what are the things that, you know, um, a 16-year-old might say to their grandmother, right? How does that impact her, right? How does what she say uh, impact the 16-year-old? What's happening in that exchange? So powerful, actually. Right, I mean, you, you use the the phrase wisdom cultivation, and that is that's just the the from time immemorial. That's where wisdom cultivation happens. Those types of conversations. Um, yeah. So Tiamat, um, you've got sort of four four pillars, four kind of uh, mm. uh, kind of areas that you're working on there, and I'd like you to to just methodically and clearly you know explain those um, so that listeners can understand what uh, what the components here are. Sure. Um, so very funny. Uh, I work with an organization called Respond. And um, around the same time that I concretized these four pillars, they came up with something very, very similar. And they map pretty much one to one. Nice when that happens, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful. Independent convergence. Gotta love it. Yeah. Um, yeah so the, the simple way of thinking about it is uh, DIME, D-I-M-E, um, Dialogue imaginal, mindfulness, and embodiment. And I, I give due credit to um, my dear friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Nathan Vanderpool, uh, for his description of these domains. Right? Um, dialogue is how you communicate your experience. Um, the imaginal is how you play around with your perceptions and your experience of the world. Mindfulness is how you can step out and observe what is occurring at any given time. Um, and embodiment is how do you develop a felt sense of your direct experience like, and, and the fidelity and the resolution, as I mentioned earlier, about what's happening there. In Tiamat, we just use a different terminology, um, but in that same order, uh, we say transjective rationality, which is the idea that you know it is through an, in, an interrelationship. Interrelationship? No, it's through a relationship between the subjective and the objective um, that actually generates a multitude of perspectives from which rationality can be born. Um, we get to look at things from different points of view and get a fuller picture. Right, so transjective uh, rationality is that. Um, we have an active imaginality. That's the I part of it, right? which is this idea that you know it's not just you're using imagination to change your perspective on the world or change your perception of it, but it's also in motion, it's in action. Can you use imaginality to behave differently? Mm. Right. So, and you can try this if you're listening to this, right? Like, like if, you have a, if you have a pet, um, like a cat or something, right? Pet it the way you usually pet it for like 30 seconds and then make one small change, right, to it. Um, whether you you pet it with the back of your hand and a little bit more tentatively, like what what would it be like? Ah, this is an interesting imaginal question. What would it be like to pet a cat if you're afraid of cats? Mm. <laughs> right. So try and imagine that you're afraid of your pet and try and pet it that way, and then see what it does in response. Um, <laughs> dogs will probably get confused. <laughs> <What's going on? laughs> um, yeah. So um, coming back to it, then we have the the metacognitive capability so is your ability to step out and observe um and 
in Tiamat, it's slightly different from mindfulness, um, in a way. Like, I try and point at metacognition as your ability to pick up on patterns in your perception, right? Patterns in your experience. Um, and the attitudes with which that is uh, that manifests itself in the world is not just about you know being aware of what you're doing, uh, which is the way that it tends to be most stereotypically understood, but it's trying to identify the the patterns in which you do anything at all, <laughs> because then you know you can like adjust and remix those patterns in different ways. Um, yeah, so it's much larger. Uh, I think it's broader than that. And then the uh, for embodiment, we just call it somatic awareness. And um, I, I, I want to be very, very specific about this because in, in the same way that I speak about metacognition being about patterns of processing information, um, somatic awareness is about patterns of behavior, patterns um, in the body, interoceptively, right? So uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, what happens if I clench this muscle how does it impact this other thing and then i can figure out what is the what's the causal pattern here and then how can i adjust it right and um what we do in our practices is that we layer these four pillars on top of each other so what if i took um a, a somatic awareness exercise and then added the dialogue or the transjective rationality dimension to it so it's like full body movement with sound molding itself into speech and then sitting the the kind of like semantic, logical, very front brain, big brain logic making thing. Sit that down a little bit and just allow what comes to literally come out of your body, right? In interaction with the world. And we call an exercise like that, we call it monologos, um, to monologue. Mm -hmm. right but it's a monologue that is not written it just you 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 kind of flow with that into like free speech and some really big questions come out of that sometimes it's just fun to watch yeah mm -hmm. that's how they <laughs> link together yeah that that it's it's a it's it's really it's very like a a comprehensive you know complete kind of picture and I really appreciate it and it's taken I appreciate the two sets of vocabulary you've just introduced to us there um because that that really helps to understand I, I like the uh the, the Venn diagram that includes mindfulness and metacognition together like that that, that that's 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 a that's a you know a, a uh you know a higher level concept something that includes both of those so. yes yeah. So, so can you describe? You know, so you've got you've got these kind of pillars or principles here, um, and and so what what does it actually uh, look like on the ground when you're you're applying this in in people that you're working with, and you're currently you know on tour in Europe, you're going to be doing it in several different countries, um, and, yeah. and, and and talking with and sharing these ideas and and practices. So yeah, can just if we were there, what would we what would a person experience, and what does that look like? Yeah, um, it's very very improvisational. But it's not like in an improv game type scenario where the goal is to, you know, either you try and create a funny situation or you try and do a long form improv, create a dramatic a dramatic situation. Um, it's somewhere like one level below that, which is just purely in terms of relational. Um, so we have an exercise called the playground. It's the first thing that everybody that comes into Tiamat uh, uh, experiences. 
right? And it is, it begins with a meditation of sorts, but it's a moving meditation. So we're trying to bring awareness to what's happening in the body. And then it starts to, from the body, open up this monitoring metacognitive faculty that says, okay, well, what attitudes are being generated as you're doing this, right? And can you just be aware of them and allow them to exist? Then it's going to start to open up into the relational field of like, I tend to say this uh, as, the, as the instructions, right? It's like other people exist. Yes, objects exist, life exists, right? So the idea is, well, how do you interact with that? What does it make you want to do? And it, it, starts to, it starts to work the impulses that arise when you just like see somebody or you, or you become aware of their gaze in a certain way, you know, or the way that they, they touch you or the way that they don't touch you maybe. And there's something in that particular relational contact which evolves into something that's unique to only that interaction. Sometimes it's a game. Sometimes it's wrestling. Sometimes it's like you're just jumping up and down for no reason and you don't know why, but it feels like it's right to do. Like that seems to be the thing that emerges out of that. And so um, fundamentally, it's really training in your impulses to tune into relationships. What's developing? And then as we start to progress through the tiers, we, we divide tier mat into tier one, tier two, tier, tier three. Um, other practices, like other exercises within the Tiamat ecology get laced in. So animal forms really build up like your strength, right? Um, Fine-tuning that into the anatomy, right? How do you, because it, it's drawn on calisthenics and, and yoga, so it's going to get you strong. But at the same time, a recent development this is thanks to John Vaveki is that it also starts to bring the metacognitive attention to a higher level of awareness, not just of like, what is this exercise? But there's a there's a challenge there as you're doing it. Um, like say cat form brings awareness to um uh I I I've I've re I feel like I want to change this vocabulary, but it, it's it's I'll I'll lean into it for now in the current iteration. Um Platform leans into IDOS. So it's like the, the structural functional organization of the thing. And so the challenge is I can improvise within the form, but to what extent do I improvise within it until it's no longer the thing? <laughs> like I'm not doing that thing anymore, you know, and then I have to kind of like dial it back. So it's trying to bring your awareness to that. But at the same time as you're doing that, you're exploring and you're, you're building up the, the strength to be able to do all these like physical things. Then, you know, the next day, you, or you do it for a week, then you bring it back into the playground. And then suddenly your body moves in a different way. The things that can be afforded to you are different. Right? Then when you lay that in with the meditation practices or the contemplation practices or the voice work, and especially in the dialogue practice, that's going to change the relationships. Right? I might not like you when I first meet you, but after a week of like tier mat tier one and we get really into deep relationship with each other i'm going to meet you in the playground in a different way you know and so it's trying to keep that complexity opening mm. i hope that's i i never like explaining this stuff propositionally but i hope that's clear <laughs> 
Yeah, I, th I think it, it's it's worthwhile trying to do. Although the, it, I think I understand that it's it's it's, it's inherently difficult. Um, and uh, I think that 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 was that was there was a lot of clarity there. Um, I think one of the things that's coming up for me is that there is um, in this kind of layered uh, kind of approach to reality. There, you know, a lot of these there's assumed to be um, down down deep a there is a self, right? There is there is a there is the self to you know, to know thyself. Um, that the you that wants to do has a sense you should do something, whether it's a simple movement or or should go into a particular profession or career and move to a particular place. Some of these things that people are formally thinking about, let's say when they're going to college um, or 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 you know pursuing education, um, where where does that uh i feel like i want to or i need to or i'm called to vocation where does that where that comes from and then the relationship between the kind of capacities that you're developing in in all the things that we're talking about to actually change who you are at or at least on mm -hmm. a formal level right there there's 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 a lot that is volitional that you can change you can form in the service of something that is more fundamental does that make sense yes 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 is that is that is that how you understand something like that is 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 what you're helping people to do? Mm. What a juicy question. <laughs> I think for some people yes and for some people no. Um yeah, I often say that like TMS is not for everybody. Um I designed it specifically for actors and now it might have a, a more general application. Um, that's what this tour is for, is for me to really get a sense of how does it land with non-actors. Um, even though it's very much part of the DNA of the thing, I don't want to make that assumption that it does. Because, um, and, and the difference is kind of in the in the context, right? We talked about volition. Um, actors voluntarily want to experiment with this process of self-making. right? And this is one of those paradigm shifts which I, I, I tend to bring this question to people because I always I, I never feel like there is um this is the definitive answer which I need to bring to somebody. I'm it's more of a question of of what kind of inquiry we can get into about this thing called the self because most people everybody has a yeah, everybody has a very, very different understanding of what the self is. In fact, it's paradoxical to define the self um, in that way because the self is something like, it's more of an active process. It's a process of becoming. And so I would argue that if one is not changing nor growing, one is actually not a self mm -hmm. at all. You know, but it's the continuous evolution, the changing the becoming something aspirationally or not, remember, independent of a good life, that's also part of it. You know? And what Tiamat kind of does is it, it tries to norm the process of self-making. Here are these four mechanics. We'll put them together. Never mind the wisdom commons thing. Never mind the wisdom cultivation thing. Right? Leave that aside for now. Just look at raw first principle mechanics. If we put all these things together, right, and, and just spin it a little bit, look at it from a different way, right? The mind, the, the, the mindfulness part is looking at the relationship between mind and mind. The imaginal part is looking at the relationship between mind and self, right? A self as an active process, yeah? not a self as an entity, mm -hmm. right? 
the somatic awareness part, the embodiment part is looking at the mind and body connection, right? This is the only time where you hear me invoke something like a Cartesian duality, right? <laughs> but it's something like direct experience, right? And then you have the dialogical, which is the self and which is the mind and other, you know, um, the way that you do all these things. And of course, then the 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 feedback is like, well, yeah, but mind is in all of those things, right? It's like mind is it seems to be the common denominator, isn't that like contradictory? And it's like, it's contradictory in explanation. It's in the enaction of it that actually you realize that graph, that that graphic is actually kind of wrong. It's not an accurate representation because the embodiment thing actually covers all other three. You have to talk with your body. Mm -hmm. this, this is a physical movement, <laughs> right? What I'm doing, yeah? Even, this even is when, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, right? And even like now, we are in a conversation, right? I'm aware that there's a camera looking here. So I, I am forced to be made aware of the image that I'm projecting here. And how do I want to shift and play around with that? The imaginal is taking up a large part of that domain. You know, how do I want to be seen? Right? Not just by, by you, but again, invoking like... 16-year-old somebody who might be watching this podcast five years down the road. What do I want them to pick up? You know? And and see, so the mindfulness aspect is also all there. It, it's just that I can't I can't draw it that way. Otherwise it'd just be one big circle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you, you get what I mean by like the paradox of it. Yeah, yeah. And so when when we start to get to this space, then you know, I'm I'm trying to get to the the point that the self-making process is something that encompasses all of these domains and is trying to get people to be just a little bit more aware of how fundamental these principles and processes are in the construction of a self. Where you want to go with that, what constraints you put on those in terms of your character development or your or your vocation. That one's up to you, bro. But I will argue, you know, what I, at least what I've seen is that people who engage with Tiamat tend to have a much clearer picture, right? Of like, where do I want to go and why and how to get there? Mm. One one thing that's uh, a thought that's coming up for me is that some of the most powerful experiences that, that I've had um, as a as an actor as a person helping to stage productions is the communal and group aspect of being part of a, a cast or a troupe um and if you look you know deeply into the history of theater you know these are these are community experiences they are they are communal you know catharsis experiences or or you know or you know satirical experiences or they're there they are um they're experienced together both by the people staging and also by an audience, by, by a community of people supporting it. So all of this self-development, self-work, how does it interact with that aspect of, of the theater and the and the sense that it is it is a communal activity? Oh wow. You got good questions here. I'm gonna slow down and think about this. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. There are multiple ways to tackle this question. I can think of three. One is from the performer's perspective. One is from the audience's perspective. And the other one is from... It's not really objective, because it's still me thinking about it. But I think in terms of their relationship. 
um i've spoken a little bit about the about the actor's perspective in a sense that they become more self-aware that aspiration is possible the collective can justify that that is indeed possible and then it reflects back and takes and they take on that question of like who do i want to be by proxy of watching somebody do that so i'm going to privilege this third perspective slightly more and this is a more of a theoretical framing which I've, i i speak about quite a lot um we begin with a text and the text is whatever that is observable that is occurring so like hamlet is a text that thing doesn't change very much you an actor steps on right and they say the words right to be or not to be that is the question da, 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 da. that thing ain't gonna gonna go anywhere but then it's also in relationship with something else the personal the subtext that subjective individual interpretation of that thing right mm -hmm. and if i were to go like to be or not to be that is the question whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, da 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 da. It's a very different feeling from to be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to da 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 da. Shifting the accent is very is a very different subjective experience. And it draws up different things. Mm -hmm. Right? So, like, even just then. If I do it in an American accent, for some reason, I'm thinking about TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> but if I do it in a Singaporean accent, it brings me back to my childhood. Neither one of those things are good or bad or better than the other, right? And why is that? Because they are going to exist in relationship to a context, right? Where does it sit in, in space, in time, in culture, in relation to the society that I'm in, right? If I'm going to be playing a show in Connecticut, doing it in a Singaporean accent could work as an interesting artistic choice. No one's going to say no to that. But then, you know, there is the question of like the context of being Asian in America, right? What does that, what does that implicate? What does that imply? You know? And, and so there is there these three domains. Maybe I can, I have a, I have a, a foot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the text doesn't change. It's in relationship to the context and the subtext. You sure? <laughs> so what's happening for an audience, ideally for me, so maybe the, the, the audience is like here. Okay. I'll, I'll look at the audience. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> what we want to see. Look at embodiment. Good job. <laughs> I'm trying. Form follows function. Okay. So what I want to see is the text being in relationship with the context right and the subtext these these things are, are very tightly bound and we see this in something like black panther for example right whether it's well you in my opinion the first one did a better job right um where you can see that in the cast is a very very deeply embodied um uh, cultural significance but they're also very much aware of what the the film itself does for the wider culture um on that scale so so individual interpretation, subtext, context. What happens when someone watches that thing? Right? You can imagine a through line that like goes from here to there. 
It's a transtextual line. There is something about the experience of it which is beyond the actor, beyond the society, beyond the words on the page. And I and I I know that there's a transtextuality is a word from um I think a French literary critic whose name escapes me at the moment. Um which actually I, I I did not refer to him at all, but then when I did see his work, uh, it did make sense. Um, but I'm speaking more as like on the fun, like as a phenomenological experience. The experience of transtextuality is something like when you feel that this particular utterance from this particular actor at this particular time means something to me. That moment, which like takes you in. And if everybody in the audience feels that, that's something special. That's like, suddenly that one thing is relevant. And if you've ever seen um, really good performances of uh, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, um, Macbeth, right? like, that piece speaks about death for me, right? Speaks about death, regret, you know, the kind of fatalism, which I think is very, very prevalent nowadays, mm. you know. And it's really odd because even in something like that, which is a very, like, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is a beautiful representation of the kind of uh, um, fatalism, a fatalistic attitude that I see in our modern time. It being represented in that way allows us to step outside and take a look at that. It's not just like, oh, I feel fatalistic. It's like, okay. Wow, that's amazing. What is that? That's the affordance that the theater does. Yeah, that's what it looks like to, to, to live in fatalism, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then you watch what happens to Macbeth at the end of the play and you go, aha, maybe, maybe that's not something I want to be. Mm. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, an earlier uh, podcast, we did an interview with, um, with the person who now has become a real partner of, of Thoreau College, um, Willie Jones III, who is helped us to stage a Shakespeare festival here on our campus. And um, I asked him in the podcast, who's your, who's your, who's, who's your favorite character to play? Or like, what's, you know, who, you know, who, who's, which, which of these, these many amazing personalities that Shakespeare created. And he said, Richard, the <laughs> third. So getting, and so to be in that, you know, the, just the most villainous kind of person you can imagine and embody that and, and then being able to put that on stage and say, "What is that? What's the backstory there? How you know what you know, exactly what you were saying at the beginning that mm. that uh, that you know separate from <laughs> the good life, right? Um, yes. And 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 being able to have that represented on stage is, is is yeah. Going back to the the question, it is a great service to a community to 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 make that manifest and and uh, and and have an opportunity to be observed and, and thought through. Yes. But also the demand on the actor is a lot because, you know, you got to go on and do that thing. <laughs> At the same time, you're observing it and then have to unpack it later. 
like I, I think I, I wrote this in one of my master's papers um, for an assignment. I said that um, actors have to be priest and sacrificial lamb at the same time. And we've killed the priest, but the lamb still has to die. So what's going to happen? We have to, we've lost the, the kind of um, distance required to be able to look at that. And part of that has to do with, I think, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not blaming the film industry um, at all. I'm a huge film buff. But having access to so many um, um, movies and stories on demand, like with Netflix um, and, and Disney Plus and whatever platform that you have in all kinds of different languages can at once be a boon and a curse. Because the boon is that, you know, you get to experience things from everywhere, right? American kids love Japanese anime as much as I do. And I'm like, wow, you know, and when I talk to American teenagers, I, I find that connection really like interesting mm -hmm. right, and enjoyable. But at the same time, I have questions about like, ooh, are you all integrating what's actually being spoken about there? Maybe you shouldn't binge watch the entire season at one go, right? Give yourself a little bit of space. <laughs> and <laughs> Walking out it. of the theater is an important experience too, yeah. <laughs> yes, you have to leave at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's really true. That 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 I haven't thought about that, but certainly this binging is is a there's a the breath is missing there between between those things. Hmm. Hmm. Well, this is this is beautiful, Ethan. Um, I I think that um, I'd like it to 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 call you know to to draw this conversation to a conclusion and and set a marker, and then we need to pick this up again at another point. Um, I guess I'd like to to conclude with, I mean, um. Yeah, I, I wonder if you have any um, any thoughts about the integration of these techniques into a broader curriculum, um, into let's say what we're doing here at Thoreau College, or in a in a in a university context or a high school context, you know, where you're also studying, you know, math and science and and and, and other things. You know, what what is the role of, of this within that kind of education? Mm. I'm really struck by actually how much I didn't know that I've wanted to hear that question. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jacob, for asking me that question. What I can say is that um, Tiamat as an ecology of practices is something that for each person in my greatest hopes anyway falls away and becomes a, a kind of um, framework from which you can put in the things that you really enjoy. Maybe you like, you, you like doing karate or you like doing taekwondo Take out animal forms, put that there, right? That'll, that'll sometimes like cover your bases for you. You know, maybe you you can let go of the meditation track right? after practice, right? This is the integration that we're talking about. Right? So let go of the meditation track and, you know, if you want to spend some time in a monastery, go do that, you know, and, and you can be in that tradition knowing that you have access to other 
forms of other practices within the domains that are actually going to help balance the ecology out. Um, and I, I look forward always to like some students of mine um, or past students of mine, or they're more like collaborators now that come in and then they ask me, like, hey, if I do this, right, does it actually conflict with this? And I just go, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's really only there for you to like, I, I, at least I try and I try and make the theater fun. So, you know, when, when I'm, if I'm holding the space, TMA is a fun place to explore, to be in relationship with other people while working on yourself with other people and your body so that eventually when you leave this container, as you said, like leaving the theater is important too. Then, okay, great. You go on to the world and then the question is always, well, how is it changing your experience of the world? And what else can you, how, how are you going to let this go over time? so that you don't have to call me up at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, I don't know what's happening in my life. What can I do? What practices can I do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Planned obsolescence. Yes, exactly. That, that was, that was the term that, that I was thinking when you were saying that, um, yeah, that, that's, you know, uh, I think that that's a, that's a beautiful, um, that really resonates with me as an educator as well. I think that uh, met several of my students uh, and 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 many of them in in one way or another have have made that transition from student to colleague. And uh, you know, and that that certainly is a goal. So if you if you can you know get to the point where you're not there and it keeps on going, and then people are doing even better and more amazing things, then that's a real marker of success as an as an educator. And um, so that's beautiful. Great. Oh. But I didn't actually answer the question, which is how it integrates into an educational framework. Okay. Um, yeah. So, sorry, let me just take a step, uh, a step at this. Um, because of its planned obsolescence, um, I would be bold enough to say that this can be thrown in um, at any point during any curriculum. It's just a 12-week term. It goes from tier one all the way up and they build on each other in such a way that the practice is always progressive and escalating. Yeah. And you can kind of just like slot it in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Ethan, thank you so much for, for taking some time today. Uh, and, and for, yeah, that very like thorough and methodical explanation of what you do. You're very interesting and creative work and I uh, really wish, wish you the best of luck on your European tour. Um, and so we'll much. be in touch. Thank you so much. はい、ありがとうございます。